going to look this morning at verses 1 to 6. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His servants the things that must soon take place. May God bless His Word to us and help us to understand it and to apply it. I don't really want you to answer this question except to yourself, but uh, what do you really need right now? What's the thing, if, if you were to sit down, if you were just to stop and in the midst of all the rush and everything else and to think of the things that you need, if you were to take out a pen and a notebook and write on the first page of that notebook the things that you need more than anything else. We probably would all end up with quite different lists, although maybe some things would be very similar. There's a, if you study sociology, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the different needs that uh, people have. Now, there is obviously a difference between need and want. And what I want to do is I want to suggest to you my list of things that are needs, and then as we look through Revelation 22, I hope that you will see how what Revelation 22 shows us, what these verses show us, is the provision that God has made for our needs. And we're going to take uh, communion in a while and and those of you who are believers, I hope you'll see the provision that God has made for you. Those of you who are not yet believers, I hope you will also see the provision that God has made for you and that you will come to lay hold of that provision. So here's the things that I would list that I need. First of all, I'm thirsty. And what I mean by that is there's so much pollution and so much weariness and, and so much strain and so much stress in life. I just want to drink and to enjoy life. Now, that, take that sentence in context. Lots of people would say, yeah, we, we go, we drink and we drink, and it's obviously talking in terms of getting drunk. But I'm talking about enjoying life. I'm talking about being alive. I'm talking about being out of the rat race. I'm talking about being more than just plodding on. I'm talking about the feeling that you have when you've walked for miles, when it's a really hot day, and you've not had anything to drink, and you are just dying for a drink. Well, that's a need that... For me as a human being, I have. I am not content with existing. It's not enough. It's not how God made me. Number two, I need food. I need strength. I need healing. Forgive my voice, but I'm fed up being sick. You know, you get tired of pain. You get tired of just 
not everything just working properly. We live in a culture where people seem to think that we have a right all the time to be free of illness, and we don't, and that's not the way that it works. But nonetheless, in a wider context, as we look at what we are as human beings, we know we just have these these needs to be fed. It is the most pathetic, it is the most horrible, it is the most heart-wrenching thing to see an emaciated child or an emaciated human being. And in a spiritual sense, I would want to argue that I'm hungry, really hungry, and very emaciated in some ways. Number three, I need security. I'm not king. I'm not Lord. I control nothing. You know, it's one of these funny things that you've got so many human beings, especially um, young guys who want to play sim games, want to play, you know... um, God games where you're in control and you run the universe and you do this and you do that. It's only on a computer. Do you know how sad we've become? I can hardly believe this. There's a Japanese gentleman who is suing the Japanese government in order to be allowed to marry a cartoon figure he is in love with. He says, in Europe, they allow homosexuals to marry. And in some other countries, they allow you to marry animals. So if I'm in love with a two-dimensional character, what's wrong with that? It's absolute madness. But he's suing. He's got a thousand people to sign his petition that he should be allowed to marry whoever that somebody has drawn. And he says, I know it's not real, but it feels real to me. It's incredible. But he's just this guy who thinks he can control his own world and be in charge of everything. I want security, but I don't want security that's offered to me by a dictator. I don't want security that's offered to me by a cult. I want freedom. I want security and freedom. And that seems almost impossible. Number four, I want to be known, not famous, not my 15 minutes of fame, not celebrity big brother or whatever it is. That's not what I want. But I want intimacy. I want to know and to be known, especially by God. I don't like the idea of God in a book. I don't like the idea of God in a religion. I don't like the idea of God somewhere else. I need to be known. And tied in with that, I need to know who I am. Where am I going? What am I doing? Now, maybe many of you will think, oh, why is it always existential angst? Except some of you will be thinking, what's existential? You know, but I mean, what I mean by that is just Sometimes in life, you need to think a little bit more about who you are. There's, uh, I was down in, in Derby this week, and one of the gentlemen there in a hotel I was speaking in said, how do you communicate with your friends who have no interest in the things of God and who have no interest in the really important stuff in life? That what floats their boat is football or television or whatever, but they're just, they don't want to go for the big stuff. And in thinking about it, I, I suggested to him a story of a woman called Traldo Junge, who was Hitler's secretary. And she, after the Second World War, when she was writing her memoirs, she said it was only in the late 1940s, in the early 1950s, that I opened my eyes and started to ask the big questions. I'd never asked them. I'd never thought of them before. 
Well, we need to open our eyes and we need to think who we are and where we are going. Another thing that I need is I need to see. I need to see beauty. I need to see color. I need to see life. I need to see light. I don't like the world when it's gray. I don't like the world when it's beige. I don't like it when everything's the same. I want to see so much more that there is to see. I don't want to be blind. And I need to be involved. I need to have a purpose. It's impossible to make it on our own. And I need the truth. I, th- I, I think of John Lennon's fantastic song where he talks about, I'm sick and tired of neurotic, psychotic, pig-headed politicians. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. Tired of religious people who keep blurting things out and media people. All I want is the truth. Now, for me, those are the basic hierarchy of needs that are always there. Eugene Peterson says that our needs for the basics is endless. Our need for the basics is endless. That what evil does, evil starves us of what we need. It bloats us with what we do not need. We are filled with stuff we don't need. And we are emaciated. We are starved of stuff that we do need. There is so much more in terms even of these basic needs. There is so much more. Again, Peterson says this. This is a very, this thought intrigued me so much and I've been thinking about it all week. He says this, none of us has laid our eyes on a person fully human. None of us. Uh, I mean, okay, you've got to think about that one a little bit. If I say to you, you're not fully human, are you saying, what, do you think I'm a robot or some kind of alien? No, but you're not fully human. You have not realized your potential as a human being. You are not there yet, and neither am I. Now, all that is a means of introduction to Genesis, uh, to Revelation 22, precisely because there's this great theme in the Bible that if you were, if you go home this afternoon, you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, you will find there the story of the alienation of human beings from God and the inability of human beings to have our most basic needs and our most basic desires fulfilled without God. And what you find in Revelation 22 is the final accumulation of of years and years and decades and millennia of God working in this world to recreate. I love Milton's poem, Paradise Lost. And I'm not just saying that. I'm not just posing. I actually do love it. I love it. I've got it uh, on my my iPhone and I read it when I go down. And I just, I love the rhythm of the words. I love everything about it. And his description of the love between Adam and Eve is one of the most beautiful things that you will ever see or you will ever hear. But it's lost. That's the point. It's lost. It's destroyed. Milton also wrote about Paradise Regained, which uh, I haven't read yet, and I'm just about to start to read. But that's what the Bible is describing. In Genesis 1 to 3, it's Paradise Lost. And in in Revelation 21 and 22, it's Paradise Restored, and so much better. Do you know, this is just maybe a, a small thing, and for those of you who are theologically minded, you might want to think about it and come back to it, but 
If God is perfectly good and God is all-powerful, then why did God allow sin into the world? Maybe one of the reasons that God allowed sin into the world is so that the restored paradise would be a whole lot better than the initial paradise. For example, Adam and Eve did not have the Lamb on the throne. Adam and Eve did not have that intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ that is described here in Revelation 22. So I'm just going to go through this, and and you'll see how these needs are are met. There is, first of all, of course, the river, the river of the water of life. Everything has a source except God. You know, if you're one of these, I would say one of these children, if you're a child who, who says, why? Why am I here? Well, because mommy and daddy brought you into this world. Why? Well, because granny and granddad brought them in. Why? You keep going. Why? 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 You keep going. You keep going. You keep going until you come to the source. At some point, it has to stop. At some point, there is a source. It's one of the great arguments for the existence of God. And that's what the Bible teaches in this, that God is the source of life. How that life developed, how it's come through history and and all the rest of it, science and history and philosophy can all discuss that, but the source of life is God Himself, and that's what it says here. This is the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's such a major theme in Scripture. Um, Eden had a river. In the Garden of Eden, there were four rivers. In Ezekiel 47, it talks about the river coming out of the temple, bringing life, and, and the, the tree, the trees lining the banks of that river, bringing healing, as you can see here. If you turn with me to the Gospel of John, look at how Jesus uses this image, John chapter 7 and at verse 37. John chapter 7 and at verse uh, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus there, as in numerous places throughout the gospel, is promising eternal life. And then in (coughs) John chapter uh, 21 and verse, sorry, 22, 21, sorry, and verse uh, 6, where Peter is talking about fish. Throw your net on the right side of the boat, you will find some. When they did, they were unable to hold the net in because of the large number of fish and so on. It's the whole story that we have in there of uh, Jesus fishing. And you go through the book of John and you find that there are numerous times where the whole image of water and life and fertility uh, comes from that. And where Jesus teaches that, just as in Psalm 46 verse 4, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of our God, as we were singing, that he is the source of the water of life. We can't do without water in our life. And in a spiritual sense, we can't do without the water of life, of which the physical water 
is, if you like, only a symbol. We need that. Now, there are two alternatives, you see. You are drinking from something. You are drinking from something. And you can drink from what the prophet Jeremiah calls the broken cisterns of this world. You can drink from the polluted waters. The ancient world was used to the idea of pollution as well as us. Paul, uh, John rather, had been minister in, in Ephesus. And in the port of Ephesus, the harbor was silting up because of the pollution. People were looking for clear and pure water. We need that in our lives. I think that we too often attempt to improve life by means that diminish it. So you feel sad, you feel lonely, you feel all these different things, you feel the need to be loved, you feel the need to belong, and you feel the need for life, and yet what you do is you do something that diminishes your life. I'm lonely, I'll drink. How does that enhance your life? No, it doesn't. I'm lonely, I'll sleep around. How does that enhance your life? No, it doesn't. We drink salt water to assuage our thirst. I lack things, so I will steal and cheat. How does that enhance your life? No, it doesn't. All the things that human beings look for to satisfy the the desires and the needs that God has created within us, not one of them satisfies. But here is pure water, and here is the water of life that brings real fruit. And our response to the river is simply that we drink. And then the second thing is the tree. Verse 2, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now again, that's a theme in the Bible. Those of you who know your Bibles, there was a tree in the garden. Again, in Ezekiel, if you, if you were to take Genesis and Ezekiel and John's gospel and Revelation together, you would see this theme working through and also in other parts. Ezekiel 47, verse 7, then he led me to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. In Genesis 3, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you, because of man. This ground is cursed. This ground that was to be fertile, it's cursed because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. And in the whole of the Old Testament, there's this constant longing for the land to be fertile. There's this constant longing for the environment to be good. There is this promise that comes, for example, in Zechariah 14, verse 11. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. God provides this tree, uh, which the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. A tree which yields its fruit every month, not just every year. There is constant food. There is constant um, renewal, constant strength. It's just such a, a, a difference from the desolation and the desertedness of so much of our humanity. And our response to that tree is that we are secure. We eat in security. There is absolute security. There is food. There is healing. There is physical and spiritual healing. There is no curse. 
If you see the film Gladiator, I, I actually think, even though it's done from a kind of, I know it was done from a kind of Buddhist perspective, but I actually think it's got some pretty good insights into this whole aspect of eternity. You know, when Maximus, whatever his name is, is uh, about to, uh, to die, he's dying. And you know, well, the story is that his wife had been killed, raped and killed, and his son as well, and so on. And uh, as he is dying in the arena, as he's dying there, he, he doesn't want to hang around in this world. He has this vision of his wife walking through these, these enormously fertile fields in Italy with the, the corn waving and so on. I mean, I know it sounds so corny, but it, it's actually an incredibly beautiful picture. And it's an extremely moving picture with all the, the music and all the rest of it as well. You know, and this horrendous ugliness with all this violence and all this death and all this destruction. And he's dying, and he just this image in his head of going to be with his murdered wife and son. I think for the Christian, as we look at what's going on in this world, we need to grasp that God feeds us and God gives us strength, but all the time we are moving towards that place where there will be no more pain, no more hunger, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. Meanwhile, as we do that, there's a fertility that comes from the life of God as it's communicated to us. Number three, the throne. The throne is there. The river flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Come tonight and you will see how God and the Lamb are one, how Jesus and the Father are one, and how the Trinity is one of the most comforting and beautiful doctrines you can ever have, and that you can't be a Christian unless you believe in the Trinity. And that's why Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians, and that's why Mormons are not Christians, and it's why Muslims do not worship the same God. Because in the, it's so fundamental that in the Godhead. In God, there is this relationship of the Trinity. I'd love to say more about it, but we're going to leave that to this evening. But from that throne, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is this, this sovereignty and this rule. Everything the city means to the saints, eternal life, abundant provision, complete healing, absolute security, are only possible because God reigns, because God rules, because Jesus is Lord. We're not taking a gamble when we become Christians. We're not saying, okay, I think I'll go with Jesus because he might win. He's Lord, and he's in control of all things. And our response to the throne is simply this. We serve him. We worship him. It's so much more than security. In uh, verse 3, look what it says at the end there. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. In Revelation 1, verse 1, it's a book that's written to the servants of God. In chapter 7, verse 15, and in this verse, the same thing. These are those who serve God. The word for service and the word for worship are the same words. Adam in Eden had to work and to take care of the garden. He had to worship God by taking, by serving God. And that's what we do as well. Because God is sovereign, because God is on the throne, we bow down and we worship. Do you understand that? Do you understand what worship is? Worship is not about you jumping around and feeling good about yourself 
or even feeling good about lots of things that God has done for you. Worship is not about you, and worship is not about me. Worship is not style. Worship is not, well, we do this kind of thing, and then they do this kind of Real worship is from the heart, and it's the acknowledgement of God, and it's the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. And it's saying, God sits on the throne. And then number four is there's the face. See, that meets, by the way, my need for security. God is on the throne. I am secure, but it's security that comes with God sets us free, which is just such a fantastic thing. And he can do that because he's sovereign. They see the face of God. Look at that verse 4. They will see his face. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with everlasting glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 1 John 3.2, John says, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. You see, there's a sense in which I know Jesus. There's a sense in which I have some understanding of who God is. But I cannot wait for the moment when I see his face. See, there's a line in the Bible there. And those of you who were at the fellowship last Sunday evening, great question asked by one of the children. How can you, I thought you couldn't see God and live. That's true. That's what Moses is told. Exodus 33, 20. He said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. But you come into the New Testament and Jesus says this in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. We see God through Jesus now. But here in Revelation 22, at its final accumulation, there is that intimacy of knowing who God is and seeing God. You see. It's just such a wonderful, wonderful prospect. What is it to see God? To have a true understanding of who God is. To have a right relationship with him they will see his face. And you know, our response to that is simply to long for it, to long for him and to seek him. Because I mentioned at the beginning the kind of longings and the things that we want and the things that we desire and we can write them down. God makes a promise in his word that if we ask according to his will, we receive. And he also tells us that those who seek him will find him. And I can tell you this, There's a strange kind of way in that one of your deepest needs is for you to need God more, to desire God more. You're too satisfied with what you've got. You're too satisfied with shallow religion. You're too satisfied with your own experience. There is so much more. It's so overwhelmingly more. There's so much more. C.S. Lewis has a great, great illustration. I just absolutely love it. He says, we are like children playing in a mud pit when we've been offered a free trip to the beach. We're in the cold and the dark and the wet and the wind and the rain. We're in the gutter and we're satisfied being in the gutter when there's the beach and the sun and, and, and all that goes with it. And that's what we need. We need to long for God, to thirst for God, to hunger after God, knowing that we'll never be fully satisfied until we actually 
get to be with him in heaven, but knowing that even in this life we can experience it a whole lot more. I honestly believe that God is saying to us, you ain't seen nothing yet. You've seen nothing yet. You keep longing for it. If only I could go back to what I had before. If only I could go back to this. And God wants us to go forward because there's so much more for us to know. Remember one time, an evening service here, a young man came up afterwards and he just said, wow, I, I wish it could always be like that. I wish life could always be like that. It was just a great thing. It's just a fantastic thing to know and experience God like that. And we need to, to see his face. Number five, the name. I'm not going to say much about this. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. That's the whole aspect of identity. That's where Aaron, the high priest in Exodus 28, had the name worn on his head. That's the contradiction of the mark of the beast, the number of the beast being the mark of man, but the name of Christ being on his people. They shall be called by my name. Who am I? I am Christ's one. I belong to Jesus Christ. That's it. See, my name is David. My name is David Robertson. There's a whole lot of other things that you could put in that. But what is my supreme identity? Is my identity in the church? No. Is my identity in my job? No. Is my identity in the fact that I'm Scottish? No. Or half English or whatever. That's not my identity. Is my identity in what I like? Is my identity in, in, in what I possess? Or, or the, can you get my identity by looking at my books or listening to my iPod or whatever? No. They're all aspects of identity. But the heart of my identity is found in Jesus Christ. I'm named as belonging to Jesus. And then number six is the light. There's no night there. Verse five, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Isaiah 60, 19, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory your sun will never set again and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. I hate it when you get up at nine o'clock in the morning. See, in, in my house, if it's dark outside, if it's like November grayness, it's, I mean, today's beautiful because the sun's out and at least we've got six, seven hours of, of, of brightness. But see that sad thing that you get in January, February, you know, I... I'm bound to be affected by it because I absolutely hate it. In our house, if it's gray, you need light on all the time. And you need, you know, we're, we're very eco-friendly, so we've got these dim, um, you know, long-lasting bulbs or whatever. And you just think, give me a splash of light. And, and to have, you know, the cold's fine if the, if the sun is out and you've got light. Well, again, just think of that in terms of where we're at, that in, in, there's, a, there's a darkness in our souls in so many ways. There's a dark night of the soul. There's the dark ages. There's um, what Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now calls the horror, the horror. There's the horror. But the light comes into the darkness. There's a vision of heaven as light helps us. And it helps us now to live a colorful life now. It dispels the darkness. It removes the darkness. And, and, and through, that's why you've got all these images, as we saw the last time we looked at this in Revelation 21, of the different stones. Because it's the light. All, the thing about each of these stones is they show color through that. 
And that's wonderful. It's so colorful. It's so diverse. It's not bland. It's not beige. It's, it's, it's multi-colorful in so many ways. And God brings us light. And again, that is, of course, a picture of heaven, but it's also a picture for now. And then uh, there is God's reign. And I think that is also an absolutely wonderful thing where the saints will reign. They will reign forever and ever. Second Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. 1 Corinthians 6.2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Luke 22.29, Jesus says, I confer on you a kingdom just as, as my father conferred one on me. Understand what's being said. Jesus says, whoa, listen, my father gave me a kingdom. I'm giving you a kingdom in exactly the same way as he gave me one. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, in the garden, the devil came to Adam and Eve and said, you could be like God. You could reign as God. And every single human being, as far as I can see anyway, has this temptation within us which says, I rule. You know, you're like a kid in primary school writing on the back of your jotter, I rule. Or so-and-so rules. And we refuse to acknowledge that it is God who rules. And yet here is the paradox. That the more we say, I rule, the more we are imprisoned. The more we say, I rule, the more we are uh, weakened. But the more that we say that God rules, the more we reign. In other words, when you say God rules, you rule. You have, you, you, you have no fear of what other human beings can do to you. You have no fear of governments. You you have no fear of him who can only destroy the the body. You are set free from your fears. Because you acknowledge that God rules, you rule. And that's the, the promise that is contained there. And we respond to that, of course, by acknowledging Christ as our Lord and our King. Well, some people might say, David, that's all great. It's fantastic. You know, you obviously believe it, and it's good that you've got this vision of light and this, this vision of the river of the water of life and this vision of the leaves of the trees for the healing of the nation and all these wonderful things that, yes, I recognize as basic, but how do you know? Verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Jesus says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see, this is the Word of God. And we find, and we drink, and we serve, and we see, and we bear the name, and we walk in the light, and we reign because of the Word of God. And in a moment, we are going to sit at the Lord's table. And as we do that, we are having all those needs met. That thirst being met, that hunger being met, that need for healing being met, that need for intimacy being met. All these things are being met. Not because the bread and the wine is magic. Not because of some special formula. But because of the word of God and because Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. How do we know? Because God says so. Because Jesus says so. 
and God cannot lie. Let's pray.